This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, what makes something a hot dish and how can we celebrate the food of this region? We have an episode of Prairie Plates. But we are going to start today with a preview of the upcoming episode of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life with host Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, as he and his guest discuss prisons and whether or not prisons should be abolished. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. I am happy to be here as always. All right. I want to start with, do we need to set up a definition for what is prison and, and what is jail? Or is it so obvious I don't even need to ask that question? I actually don't think it's obvious, although I don't know that it's that important. Prison is where people go for long-term incarceration after they have been found guilty. Jail is where they are before that happens. There are also psychiatric institutions uh, and other places, juvenile hall and things like that, that, that people end up in. Our conversation is about the whole thing. Our conversation is about any place where you are contained for any period of time and where you are subject to the power and the authority and the rules of someone else. So in the conversation with your guest in talking about abolishing prisons and jail, is it just that simple? All of a the sudden there's no prison or jail or, or I mean, there has to be a little bit more to the conversation than that. Well, there is, but I think it's important to recognize the background because your puzzlement is actually part of the issue. Hmm. He's talking to what gets called the black radical movement. People like Angela Davis and Huey P. Newton and W.E.B. Du Bois, this tradition of, of literature and conversations and activists who look at structural injustice in, in society and say, we can't rescue these things. They're so bad. They're so trapped in racism. They're so trapped in, mm. in cruelty that we have to get rid of them. The problem is, like most revolutionary thinkers, they don't give us a good picture of what life is like after the revolution. Many of them are influenced by Karl Marx, and as someone who has taught Marx many times, I'll say that his criticism of capitalism and of the modern world is incredibly insightful, really powerful, worth hearing, and absolutely worth attending to. But there's no picture at all as to what a communist society is going to look like. There's mm. no vision of what the world looks like after the revolution. Think for a second about the Taliban. Right. They take over in Afghanistan. And the first question is, who fixes the roads? Who makes sure that the electricity is still running? And they don't have that set up because revolutionaries aren't good with details. So there is this question of what's it going to look like after? But even before that, we have to ask ourselves, is this the right solution? And so what Tommy is doing is trying to tone down the attack on prisons and say, we can do a lot of what you want by narrowing our vision of what prisons are hmm. and by rethinking the structures. 
So walk us through his main arguments. So what he does is he takes piece by piece the arguments of, in particular, Angela Davis, and he asks, are they realistic criticisms about prisons themselves? So, for example, he addresses her accusation about uh, cruelty. So, for example, he will look at Angela Davis and other folks' accusation that prisons are connected and intertwined to the legacy of slavery. And he'll analyze that and say, while there are some aspects of prisons that are similar, that metaphor doesn't really work. Or he'll talk about the privatization uh, argument, which is there are lots of people who feel that having private for-profit prisons are not... uh, is not consistent with justice and and that that's something that the government should do. And while he is sympathetic to that notion, he also recognizes that in the modern world, someone's got to build the, the benches and somebody has to cook the food and that privatization in and of itself doesn't necessarily cause injustice. Why are you talking about privatization right now? So most of Americans' prisons are run and funded by the government. But there are a whole bunch, and there is a growing trend, of private companies building these prisons because they claim they can be more efficient. But what does more efficient mean? It means that people are making money off of the backs of folks who are incarcerated. It means that they're going to try to cut costs and give them worse food and clean the prison less and... and they're less concerned about their rights. Now, in and of itself, that may not be a problem. You could have a moral good considered corporation. But two things have been discovered in the last, say, 10 or 20 years. The first is when the profit motive is the main concern for a prison, human rights tend to disappear. People are treated much worse and there's much uh, less chance of a redress. But the second is that these private prison companies lobby the government to make laws stronger and make sentences longer because the government has an interest in not arresting people. The government has an interest in, at least in theory, getting people rehabilitated, getting them back on the street, having them be citizens. A private corporation has an interest in getting as many prisoners as possible because the more prisoners they have, the more profit they make. Hmm. And that runs counter to our sense of what justice is. We should not arrest people and put them in jail because we want to make money. We should arrest people and put them in jail because they committed a crime and they need to be separated. And that's another aspect of the discussion that we have with Tommy, because one of the things he argues is that the vast majority of people who are in prison, who are in prison for property crimes or drug use, probably don't need to be in prison at all. They can be in other institutions. They can be kept up at home. They can go to treatment programs. They can they can go to to programs where they rebuild what they broke or 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 did civil service and and cleaned the streets. I don't know, I'm making stuff up. Violent pr- criminals, people who are a danger to themselves and others, people who 
give who cause bodily harm and serious irreversible trauma, those may be candidates for prison. So part of the issue is that, especially in the American system, we have the largest percentage of population in the world uh, that is imprisoned. The the common number that gets thrown about for African American men is twenty five percent of the African American. Uh, men end up in prison for one reason or another. And most of those people don't need to be in prison for 20 years. Most of those people don't need to be separated to such an extent that they live a life of brutality, of sexual abuse, of no access to education, no access to family. That's what the discussion is about. The discussion is focused on the fact that the prison system that we have now is so broken that it is not in any way built to rehabilitate or return people back in the street. It's built to punish. It's built as a form of revenge. And it's a built uh, to take people off the streets so that we can forget about them and never think about them. How does how the United States does prison compare with other countries? I'm that realizing is, there's hundreds of other countries. <laughs> yeah, that that is actually super interesting. And there are, of course, many prison systems that are worse. Mm-hmm. In North Korea, for example, when you go to prison, you are not just sent to prison, but you're sent to prison for three generations. Mm-hmm. So you go to prison, your children go to prison, and your grandchildren go to prison. That is inconceivable. At the same time, in places like Denmark, I think it's Denmark and not Norway. In Denmark, they have this incredibly forward-thinking prison system where uh, inmates are treated with respect, where they're taught skills, where they're given education, where they're given responsibilities. And then the level of recidivism is minuscule compared to the United States situation. The, the way that they can rehabilitate and take people who either made mistakes or were broken in some way. Now they have therapy. Now they have, have, have a mechanism to get better and to grow. And so we can learn a lot from the, the things that other people do wrong and the things that other people do right. And what it appears to me, and this is one of the reasons why I was interested in having Tommy as a guest, it appears to me that the conversation about prisons in the United States has stalled and that what politicians do is when they're running for re-election or for an office, they want to be hard on crime. They want to create three strikes, you're out laws. They want to do all these things. And then they don't care anymore because they're using the prison and the fear of crime and the fear of your neighbor as a mechanism to motivate people to vote for them. We should be having a countrywide, deep and vigorous conversation about what prison is, how it should be constructed, who should go, and and what the purpose of prison is. And we are not having that conversation. And so part of why I brought Tommy on the show is not because I agree or disagree with him. I, I, I never choose uh, guests because of that. The reason why I had Tommy on the show is because I think it's a really important conversation that we need to jumpstart and that North Dakota in particular, but the rest of the country needs to rethink what they're doing, what we're doing and and why we're doing it. What does how the U.S. 
does prison, which is very much more in line with retribution instead of rehabilitation, say about this country's morals? How you punish people tells a lot about who you are. This is true as parents. This is true as schools. This is true as bosses and employees. You learn a tremendous amount about one's, not just morality, but one's view of the world and how one sees other people. The prison system is just a large example of this. This is why the black radical movement likes to talk about slavery in conjunction with the prison discussion. Hmm. We are a country that has not resolved the legacy of slavery. We have done some very, very important and moral and wonderful things in response. And we have done other things that are not so good. And we have neglected a lot of things. If 25% of a population based on race is in a prison, something has gone wrong. It is not that 25% of African-American men are irredeemable. Now, it may be poverty. It may be education. It may be cultural. But it also might be blindness to injustice. So, for example, there are lots of studies that show that a white person and a black person charged with the same crime, uh, the black person gets uh, a much higher sentence than a white person. This is also true, by the way, of men and women, that women get much lighter sentences than men for the same crimes. Hmm. Why? Because we have this racist history and we have these threads in our country that we haven't fully resolved. We have this sexist history in our country and these sexist threads that we haven't resolved. So the very context is going to allow us to analyze the prison system in a certain way. Also, we are a people who believe that everyone is responsible for their own actions. There are a lot of folks who think, you know, if you're poor, it's because you made a mistake. If you're poor, it's because you're lazy. If you broke a law, it's because you're a bad person. If you uh, end up in a bad situation, it's your own fault. You should have seen it coming and you should have stopped it. Now, our prison system works the same way. Our prison system says, we're not concerned about your background. We're not concerned about how you were raised. We're not concerned with who your parents were or your economic situation. You did this thing and you yourself are responsible for it. So the very individualistic spirit that governs the philosophy of the United States governs the prison system in the United States. And that makes it much harder to figure out how to rehabilitate. It makes it much harder to care for prisoners in the literal sense of the term. If everyone is responsible for their own actions and the other things that people do have no effect on who you are, then it also follows that the people who want to help you, the people who want to heal you, the people who want to educate you, the people who want to who want to 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 cure you of whatever illness you might have, 
they don't matter either because they're not part of the equation. It's you and it's only you. And I'm not speaking for Tommy here. I'm, 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 I'm answering the question from sort of figuring out the answer as I talk. But ultimately, I think that our prison system is individualistic and unbending in a way that Americans tend to be individualistic and unbending when it comes to questions of morality. We're visiting today with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life, which airs this Sunday at 5 o'clock Central, 4 o'clock Mountain. And there is a longer podcast version available. Jack, we've mentioned your guest, but let's hear a little bit more about who he is and why you picked him. So Tommy Shelby is a professor of African-American studies and of philosophy at... Harvard University. He was a guest on the show in 2016, this is his second visit, where we talked about um, a philosophical look at black identity. And I really like Tommy because I think he's smart and I think he's open and I don't think he's thrown by conversations that other people might find awkward or scary. You know, I'm, I'm a white Jewish guy in North Dakota talking to an African-American about black identity. That's hard. That's, I, mm. I might say the wrong thing. I might, yeah. you know, th these are conversations that people uh, are reluctant to have because they're nervous and they, and they don't want to be accused of racism if they have a, cu a curiosity or they don't want to say the wrong thing and feel bad. And so I think my role again as why in why radio is to have the hard conversations for people in a way that they can think about it and not be afraid of reflecting on the ideas. So I chose Tommy because I think this is a very hard and a very subtle conversation that I wanted an interlocutor who I thought was super smart and had a really clear background in the issues and who also could, uh, who wouldn't be bothered if I if I said things the wrong way? There's a, the final question mm. of the episode. Uh, I hem and haw because it's a weird question about the book, and I tell mm -hmm. him, oh, "I'm not sure how to ask this." And I talked about my wife, talked to it about my wife beforehand, and this, that, and the other thing. And I asked the question, and he just answered the question. Right? He wasn't bothered by my nervousness or 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 uncertainty, and. So I, I encourage people to listen to him just because he's a voice worth listening to and he's a voice who isn't someone who is going to make you feel guilty for whatever thoughts you might be having as you have the discussion. Jack, do you and Tommy talk about ways to prevent a crime? I'm thinking of, you know, the Center for American Progress talking about strengthening access to housing and, and calling it key to preventing, if, if nothing else, recidivism rates, you know, people returning to prison and quite possibly stable housing is one of the, the key indicators, the key abilities to just prevent crime to begin with. He doesn't discuss that particularly in this book, but his previous book, Dark Ghettos, is very much about that. And it's about the roles of neighborhoods and community in political power and representation and advocacy and in crime prevention. And so part of what he's trying to figure out as a project, as a career-long project, is how can we 
create communities and environments for people who are either victims or uh, marginalized or not given resources, how can we create circumstances for them to flourish? And what are the deep structural issues that prevent them from flourishing? And what are the local neighborhood community issues that prevent them from flourishing? Now, we can have the same conversation about rural white folks uh, in Pennsylvania and meth country. And we can have the same conversation in uh, about Native Americans on the reservations or or what have you. We can have those conversations about anybody. Frankly, we could have a conversation about the ultra-rich and why they all seem so bitter <laughs> and, uh, and why they're being so mean when they have so much money and they have everything. We could have that conversation about any group. Tommy is an African-American studies professor who has decided that what he's going to talk about is the black experience in the United States. And he wants to respond to the black radicals because he thinks that their answers aren't nuanced enough and are maybe aren't realistic enough. Although, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth. We're visiting today with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota and the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. The upcoming episode airs this Sunday at 5 o'clock Central, and there is also a podcast version uh, that includes about 30 extra minutes of material. This month's theme is Should Prisons Be Abolished? Jack, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Main Street, a hot dish competition. First this. Support for Prey Public is provided by Josh Beauchet, broker and realtor with Real Broker LLC. With a team of agents serving homebuyers, sellers, and investors throughout North Dakota, the Detroit Lakes area, and northwest Minnesota. Josh can be reached at 701-367-3513. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. You're listening to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and it is time now for Prairie Plates with Rick Guion. Rick, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be back with you, Ashley. And I think your plate this past weekend was quite full with hot dish. Well, okay, I'm going to start first. Are you naturally one of those people who says hot dish or casserole? Oh, it's got to be hot dish. Okay, and why? What's a hot dish? What's a casserole? Oh, they're, <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good question. I think they're the, about the same thing, but up here it's uh, hot dish. You know, it's kind of the pop versus soda sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, hot dish to me. Okay, what makes something a hot dish? Yeah, that's also a very good question. I think it needs to be probably baked 
number one, <laughs> something in the oven for a while, something that's savory, something that has a creamy element, something that brings things together, such as ground beef or noodles or corn or beans or that green beans, mm-hmm, um, yeah. that sort of thing, rice, cabbage. I took a quick Google here, the, the top hit on Eater, the first sentence, hot dish is an anything goes one dish meal from the upper Midwest. It's especially loved in Minnesota and North Dakota. That's a great <laughs> explanation. Sounds, yeah, it sounds like Eater, Eater got it all figured out. And you were judging a hot dish festival? Am I? Is that what it was called? I was a judge at this okay. past sixth annual Fargo Hot Dish Festival. This year at Bruhalla, usually they're on the Drecker Brewing side, but this year on the Bruhalla side because they have that wonderful new facility. And it's great, and it worked out very well. Usually it's kind of packed, kind of hot, but this year people could move around, taste test, that sort of thing, mm. chat. Um, I was a judge, actually, with Molly Ye, Food Network star Molly Ye, who was super cool to work with, and Bo Vandra from Sioux Falls, who's a restaurateur, chef, and was on Guy's Grocery Games twice and actually did quite well on that show. I mean, Rick, you're kind of big time. You're going to outgrow Main Street pretty soon. (laughs) No, I like Main Street. (laughs) I like this. All right, all right, good. Well, okay. Um, how many how many hot dishes did you sample? Kind of walk us through what you were looking for, and then give us tips for a good winter hot dish. Like you want something that like you feel it clinging to your ribs. If it doesn't cling to your ribs, it's not a hot dish. <laughs> well, you're right. In this time of year, you kind of want something hearty, and there were a lot of those and uh, other things out there too. And we tried. 14 hot dishes and 14. yeah and they weren't whole plates but they were kind of medium-sized cups and i didn't have seconds of anything although i wanted to about an hour later but <laughs> you start getting full and some of them are so good you eat them all some of them you know you just kind of sample or or whatever and mm. um yeah, I was looking for something that w- that was hearty, mostly flavor. Uh, I do have a sheet here that are the scales of one to five, the three categories, taste, texture, and creativity. Mm, creativity. Yeah. Okay, taste and texture seem a little bit obvious, but I think we can spend a, l- a little bit of time there. Taste, I mean, you're looking for... Uh, savory taste, umami taste, kind of uh, something to balance out the savory, maybe with a little acidity, mm-hmm. a little vinegar, something like that. Okay. Um, Cows and Co. had a, a frico or a cheese crisp. Ooh, they used their. I love a good frico cheese crisp. And these were made with Gouda from their oh, facility. Stop near Carrington. And that's the one I really wanted seconds on, but I just didn't have time. <laughs> okay. So texture. I mean, obviously you don't want this like a, you know, like a soup. <laughs> right. And some of them, like the noodles were a little too mushy or the rice was a little too mushy. And mm. yeah, you don't want it too liquidy. You want a solid. You want it to kind of come together. And then creativity. Um, there were some very creative ones, especially with uh, Frank's Lounge and 701 Eateries here in Fargo. So, And in fact, uh, 701 Eateries got the most creative award okay. for their uh, Italian beef, Chicago Italian beef hot dish, okay. which was like braised beef. So, I, some, yeah, I think Chicago Italian beef and I think sandwich. 
Yes. And so take the bread away. And that's kind of what you had. And it was braised, probably braised chuck, I'm guessing, with some homemade jardinera on top. And last year. I've never known how to say that word. <laughs> now you do. <laughs> hey, all right. Thanks. I love to eat it. I'm, I'm like, the, the, the G, G, Giardia, Giardia, which is like a bacterial infection. <laughs> I'm like, don't get that one. No. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> so, okay. And then just, was that, was that rice? Was that noodle based? That or one, was it? that one was braised beef. And then on top was a Giardinera. But yeah, there oh, was a, okay. there was a jambalaya entry from Blackbird that had rice. Jambalaya. Yeah, and you don't really think of that as a hot dish no, or a I casserole. Would I would think of that as a jambalaya. <laughs> Am I too much of a purist to even participate in something like this? As a judge, I would say you're not the only one there. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting, interesting. Okay, y- you said that Cows & Co. was the run- one that, like, you know, if you'd really had that second stomach, you would have gone for it. So what – this? if I'm not mistaken, this is, like, really fresh – cream um like they're raising their own animals and and everything right yeah and and you could taste all of that in fact they won grand champion they won the big award because Mm. the mashed potatoes were done well you could tell yeah fresh cream fresh cheese the hamburger was local that they used um and the frico cheese crisp was amazing with the gouda that they make and so they were very pleased with the award but it's it's also very deserving Hmm. i remember trying to follow along to martha stewart's like frico um she was making like taco shells and i never could do it because i'm nowhere near as magical of a being as martha stewart is but that 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 cheese and the way that it holds together and like melts but also stays crispy what (laughs) I know it's a miracle, and I think Martha was a little ahead of her time with that one, which she's, I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I've had that cookbook for at least 20 years. She's a food genius. I've used quite a few of her recipes, and yeah, the Frico, you can do that on a silicone mat and bake it, and Hmm. yeah, it's not not that hard, and they are delicious. You just have to have a lot of cheese. (laughs) Oh, yeah, so hard. Uh, Have you judged at this event in the past? I have not, and this okay. is the this is the sixth annual. I was there last year doing some social media for my Fargo Moorhead Eats uh, Facebook group, and that was a lot of fun. But and you're up to thirty two thousand followers. I'll put that out there. Over thirty three now. Oh, okay, okay. Well. Uh... This says 32K plus, so all right, good to know. Well, anyone can join uh, Fargo Moorhead Eats. Uh, looks like you have both uh, an Instagram and a uh, Facebook. So find on the socials we're visiting today with Rick Gion for Prairie Plates. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about what you learned from this event that you could kind of take away into your own home cooking. I was very inspired by Nova Eatery that's in Fargo Brewing Company, and they had kind of a French onion noodle hot dish, and it was amazing. French onion soup. Okay. Yes, French onion soup meets hot dish. Okay. And there's a recipe in the New York Times that uses elbow macaroni for something similar, but they used like egg noodles, and it was it was amazing. And so I actually, that was one of the ones that was top on my list with Cows and & Co. and 701 Eateries. Hmm. So that may be one I may try at home. It, 
it was really good. <laughs> you know, we could talk a lot, I think, about sort of that American palate. Because I've lived in France. I speak French. I have a, a few French friends. And I can just hear all of them saying to me that they would not eat this. Um, and, I mean, I remember even one time saying, uh, I, I took two desserts and I put them on the same plate. And you could hear the people gasp in the room because they don't mix. And one of the things about French food is they are so uh, adherent to the traditions and the traditions go back, you know, six, 700 years. And it's, right. it's just, it is perfection when it is served to you. But I remember distinctly having like a strawberry feta salad and they were like, you Americans. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Exactly. They're like, you always have to have sweet. You can't just have, you know, a salad. You have to put fruit on it. And I was like, I, I think they taste good. <laughs> but, but I wonder um, just kind of what – I didn't mean to go this direction, so I apologize if it comes a little out of left field. But that sort of American palate, that sort of mixing and, and fusing things versus countries that really hold to a singular tradition – and I don't think either one is bad. No, and I think there's a hot dish kind of in almost every culture, and it may not be called hot dish or casserole, but if you look at, like, Hungarian, Polish, that's cabbage rolls, that sort of thing. Italians do have baked pasta dishes that mm -hmm. are authentic. French onion soup, in a way, is kind of a layered thing um, with the baguette, the cheese, and the broth and, and onion. So... I don't know. Maybe they just need to get with the program. <laughs> Maybe I just have persnickety friends. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, get new friends. <laughs> I'll move back to France and make new friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, you were also eating kuchen at this. What's that got to do with hot dish? Well, you know, it really ties in, and kuchen is delicious. Karen's kuchen up in Laramore supplied the kuchen. It was really good. I tried... The blueberry and the strawberry rhubarb, because you can't say no to stra strawberry rhubarb. I know Malier tried that one, too, and thumbs up on that. Mm. There was a kuchen eating contest. I missed it. It was oh, in boy. another area of Bruhalla, but because I was judging and doing some social media at that time, um, so I missed that. But that looked like a lot of fun and maybe something I'll do next year. <laughs> so you're already looking forward to next year. Yes, yeah, because you're saying sixth annual, and it sounds like it's growing. It's taking over the other side of that building now. Um, you know, how many how many people are going to this? 600, 600 tickets were sold, and what? I really want to highly encourage folks, if they want to go to this next year, to buy tickets early, like when they announce it, when Drecker and Brujala announce it, because mm. this event was sold out within a week. Oh, it wow. Is, yes, it's... It's very highly regarded, highly revered. The people at Brujala do it the right way. Uh, it's, a, it's a classy event. You can bring the family to. It's very nice. So, yes, I'd highly encourage people to get their tickets right away, <laughs> follow Drecker, follow Brujala on social media, that sort of thing. And usually tickets are for sale in December, so just watch out there. Okay. All right. We check in with Ricky on for Prairie Plates once a week. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. And remember, you can follow along on his food blogs. Just search Fargo Moorhead Eats, and you'll find him on Instagram and Facebook.
This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. It's going to be a big construction summer for the mammoth $3 billion Fargo-Moorhead flood diversion project. The plan is to have it operational in time for spring 2027. In an excerpt from the Prairie Pulse television show, we get an update on the project as host John Harris visits with Chris Bakigard, the project's director of engineering. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks, thanks for the invite. You're here today to talk about the Fargo-Moorhead Diversion Project, a massive undertaking. Will this theoretically protect Fargo-Moorhead from flooding forever? Our project goals are to provide permanent reliable flood protection up to a 100-year event. Um, you know, and I think for perspective, just to look at, you know, as we've studied the, the data from f- throughout history here in the valley, you know, we looked at the 2009 event, you know, it was often called a roughly 100-year event. When you put all the statistics together, the way we're designing our project, the 2009 flood ended up to be closer to a 50-year event. So again, when we talk about 100-year protection, that, that's an even higher level of protection than what we had for, uh, for fighting a flood of 2009. And then again, our, our secondary goal is to provide a, a project that we can fight a flood up to that 500-year level, you know, which is significantly higher. Again, we need to do some additional measures in certain areas and provide a small amount of of uh, intermediate flood protection and kind of emergency flood measures, but we'd still be able to operate our project and keep the community safe all the way up through that 500-year level. So as things change in the future, we've got a lot of flexibility to adapt our project and both the cities and the counties um, around the metro have been working hard to, to build up intermediate protections that are that are coming together with our project. Again, at the end of the day, um, the cities of Fargo and Moorhead will construct about 40 miles of interior levees and flood walls. They'll do improvements and or replacements for 40 stormwater lift stations along the river that provide again that that protection from um, from stormwater, um, be able to evacuate stormwater if we got rain during a, during an event. And again, all that allows us to pass that 37 feet of water through through town uh, before we operate, which again, our operation is sets at about a 5% annual chance of flooding each year or a 20 year flood event um, before we ever have to operate our project. So the cities are very well protected up to that point to, to help us um, secure. So they've been working on that as we've been working on developing our project as well. So how many companies or contractors uh, are working on this project and of course I don't even know if you can count the people. How many are involved? <laughs> Counting people is challenging because it, it varies day to day depending on what all's happening but you know right now we've roughly have about 50 construction related companies working on the project. Um, you know we also have many consultants and local technical folks that are working on the design, the engineering, some of the hydrology and environmental work as well. But yeah, from a construction standpoint, we have over 50 companies that have been actively working on the project so far. Can you talk about some of the sacrifices being made by folks upstream and and their interest and who are they and where? Certainly. Um, Yeah, you know, as we talk a lot about the our focus on the 260,000 or so people that are protected by the project, it certainly wouldn't be right not to mention those who have had to make some sacrifices for, for the good of the broader community. Um, you know, our approved project um, required purchasing property from numerous landowners along the footprint um, of the channel and along the southern embankment alignment as well. And also, um, we need to 
purchase flow adjustments for the temporary storage of water upstream of Fargo during our operational events. Um, we're doing our best to ease this transition. We know it's tough. Uh, we've been providing an appraisal-based payment for, for property. We're also providing local relocation assistance where needed. Um, ag producers in that upstream area who may have a higher potential to experience some flooding at times. Uh, when we operate the diversion, we'll be protected through uh, several crop insurance programs and, and have those ready to implement by 27. You know, despite all that, we certainly know that we all have emotional ties to our homes and to lands that have been in our families for years. Um, we certainly owe these property owners a, a debt of gratitude for, for helping us protect the overall community. Mm. What about environmental hurdles you've had to clear to build it? You know, that, that's been a, a major undertaking. It's kind of the, the biggest study with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers did an environmental impact study. That, that set the framework for the entire project. Uh, we do operate under two primary construction permits, one from the state of North Dakota and one from the state of Minnesota. Along with that, we've got over 200 other local and regional permits that we have in place. And we track on a, on a daily basis over 2,000 different conditions for those permits to make sure that we stay um, in line with what we've agreed to and, and to help mitigate our project's impacts and also just to make sure we care for, for what's needed to kind of protect the environment from the overall construction process. So, Well, what about, uh, I know just going back to when it was first proposed, how much opposition was there? You know, early on, I think there was a lot of folks that, that questioned the need for the project and, you know, kind of is it really what was necessary. So there was a lot of, a lot of very good discussion back then about what options maybe should be and, and could be implemented. And I, I think as we've gotten further into construction now and, and, and have settled in on a, on a final plan, we've certainly seen uh, some of that opposition dwindle, but there, there certainly were, were some concerns early on and, and I think things that we worked through throughout that environmental process and the public involvement process early on in the project. What, what kind of work will be going on this, this coming spring and summer? I think you know a lot of folks are surprised when we tell them that you know we've been working 24/7 throughout the winter as well, um, primarily on the channel parts of the project. Uh, they've been able to move clay all throughout the winter months. Again, we certainly shift into a much higher gear as we approach the spring and summer. Uh, we will work on the bypass for I-94, so we'll have some similar traffic interruptions like we did up on I-29 last summer as they build the bypasses. That allows them to then build the new bridge structures over the channel and then return the, the traffic to their to the normal routes. Uh, we will have work on all 19 of our, our bridge structures going on this summer. That includes both roadway bridges and railroad bridges. Uh, they'll be working on over 13 river and drain inlets to allow water into the channel. We have four new levee projects that will be starting up this summer to, to, to work to finalize the in-town work. Uh, the Corps of Engineers will start three new segments of their southern embankments um, this summer. And then we also are, are planning to construct the final portion of the Oxbow Hickson-Bakke levee that protects that community from the project operations for the areas west of County Road 81. Do you think this project uh, is going to be worth it in the long run? Uh, you know, absolutely. I certainly have a vested interest in the role that I'm in to, to provide provide that protection. 
But I think, you know, thinking back to 2009, I was here and, and I worked on the 2009 flood fight uh, and, and was helping the city of Fargo um, in, in, that, in that effort. And we came very close uh, and to having to having a catastrophic loss in 2009. Uh, we have 18 billion in property that is being protected by the project, so it saves so much on the emotional stress of doing volunteering and fighting floods every year, and also just the the protection of all of our homes and property. I think it's definitely uh, definitely worth it in the long run. Is the projection that you will finish on time? Yeah, and and, and finishing, you know, our our. Our term for finishing in the 27 time frame is really getting the work prepped enough that we could fight a flood if we needed to. There certainly will be some some finishing work that goes on beyond that, but the 27 time frame is is where we're where we're locked into, and uh, we're, we're going to be ready to ready to fight a flood if we need to. Best of luck to you. Thank you. That was Prairie Pulse host John Harris in conversation with Chris Bakigard, the Director of Engineering for the Fargo-Moorhead Flood Diversion Project. You can watch all of the episodes of Prairie Pulse on Prairie Public's YouTube channel. This is Dakota Datebook for February 7th. The wild turkey is a popular North Dakota game bird. It may be surprising to learn that they're not native to the state. Once they arrived, they found everything they needed to thrive. They found trees for roosting, grasses and shrubs for nesting. North Dakota plants attract insects for hungry chicks. And in winter, there's food provided by waste agricultural grain and by garden leftovers. In short, turkeys have everything they need. The question arises, if turkeys are not native to North Dakota, how did they get here? The credit goes to Pete Volk and Vic Carafel two gentlemen from Bismarck. After a year of negotiations of what Vogt called old-fashioned horse trading, the deal was finalized. The board of a game management program in Texas that raised the turkeys wanted to get something in return. Enter the Isaac Walton League, a national conservation organization with a chapter in North Dakota. The league helped arrange the purchase of 50 bighorn sheep from the Randolph Hearst Ranch in California. Texas would get 15 of the sheep. In exchange, North Dakota would get 32 turkeys and the rest of the sheep. With negotiations completed, Volk and Carafel drove to Texas with a trailer. Along with the manager of the wildlife program, they hoisted up a net on poles and waited for the turkeys. As the birds moved towards the feeding ground, the men dropped the net, trapping the turkeys. All that was left was to get them to North Dakota. Volk and Carafel took turns driving nonstop to get them to the release point quickly. On this date in 1955, the Texas turkeys were enjoying their first full week of freedom in North Dakota. Today, the turkey is second only to deer as the state's most popular quarry. The National Wild Turkey Foundation applauds the state's conservation efforts, calling North Dakota a fine hunting destination. So whether you find the turkeys an asset or a nuisance, you can credit two guys from Bismarck who drove day and night to bring them to the state. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Dr. Carol Butcher. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from Humanities North Dakota. That's it for this Wednesday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, 
A number of people in the region are second and third shift workers, meaning they work late into the night and sometimes overnight. What childcare is available? We talk with the vice president of Jasmine Services about a recent expansion to 24-hour daycare. That's tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.